Zechariah 14, 9 to 21. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Gabah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, uh, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, There will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day... There will be inscribed on the, on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Amen. The prophet Zechariah, he concludes his book and this chapter from beginning in verse 1. He concludes with a final battle and final destruction of the enemies of God and then a victorious and peaceful future for the people of God. God destroys his enemies and the enemies of his people and then he reigns and those who walk in holiness, those who are described as holy to the Lord, will reign and rule righteously. That's what he's describing here in chapter 14. Now, there are a couple of interpretive questions that have to be raised, major ones, in order to understand this chapter. One is, what is its relationship to chapter 12? What is its relationship to chapter 12, especially 12 1 to 9, wherein, in chapter 12, we also met with the fact that God makes the nations 
come up against Jerusalem, and then God destroys and defeats the nations who rose up against his people in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 14, a similar occasion is described of warfare and battle and then defeat. First, the enemies have some success, and then great defeat and permanent defeat of the enemies. So what is its relationship? Are we talking about the same battle or same war or a different one? And for our purposes uh, now, we're going to take the two as being the same one. And also the same as Ezekiel 38 and 39, the battle of Gog and Magog, as well Revelation chapter 27 to 10. Revelation 27 to 10. We'll take all of these to be the same, but described in various ways in these passages. That's one of the questions. Another question that we have to ask is, in chapters 12 and 14, in these battles, in these wars, in these defeats of the enemies and deliverance of the people of God, are we talking about the literal Jews, Jews according to the flesh, the physical descendants, or are we talking about the church which makes up Jews and Gentiles? Who are we describing? Or what is Zechariah describing in chapters 12 and 14? And even for that matter, chapter 13. Is Zechariah and is God's concern the physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, physical Israel, Israel according to the flesh? Or is this concern primarily focused on the church, which makes up some Jews and some Gentiles? Who, which one is it? And we'll take the approach that it is the Jews and Gentiles, the church, where in the Bible, in many places, the church, the true people of God, are known as Zion, Jerusalem, Judah, Israel. These names are given, such as Galatians 6.16, peace be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. And even in Galatians 3.26-29, where he says that if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. And regardless of whether we are Jew or Greek, male or female, we are Abraham's offspring in Christ. It is in that sense that we'll take these chapters. And actually, that should be our perspective of the Scripture in reference to redemption. Whenever the Scripture is speaking of redemption, salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the focus is the true people of God. Because the fakers, the pretenders among the physical descendants, they don't have salvation and they don't have forgiveness of sins. So it does not apply to them. Eternal life, forgiveness, salvation does not apply to physical descendants merely because or simply because they are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember in John, or let's say uh, Luke, Luke 3, 1 to 14, John the Baptist, he railed against the Jews who came to him for baptism because he said, do not begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham for our father, for God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. God doesn't need you. Your bloodline, he doesn't need you. 
He wants you to repent of sins. If he needed people, he could make more people out of rocks. He doesn't need you. And so the focus of Scripture is always to chastise and castigate those people who think that they are the saved and the true people of God, even though they never repent of sins and they never believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the cross of Christ. It's always against them. So in those ways, we'll understand Zechariah 14. And we pick it up in verse 9. Let's see verses 9 to 11. In 9 to 11, first verse 9 establishes the rulership. Who is in control and who is the ruler over all the earth? It says in 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. When he is identified here, he's identified as king. That's why the scriptures call him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's a, that's a description to identify Christ in Revelation chapter 19, 16, 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And even in seventeen fourteen, Revelation seventeen fourteen. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. It is Christ the Lord who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So He and His dominion will be established over all the earth. Christ. Then, moreover, it says... The Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. This is what the Lord persisted in telling the people, but the people continually resisted. He persisted in telling them and he will be victorious as we see in Zechariah 14.9. Eventually, it will be finally established. Only he will be known as the Lord. In Exodus 23.13, he warned them, 23.13 of Exodus. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. He warned them, don't mention them, meaning don't refer to them favorably, don't invoke them, don't pray to them, don't consider them real and true. Other gods, don't even speak of them from your mouth favorably. Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, he says this, Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. No other gods before the Lord, 
and we should not make an idol in order to worship the Lord. He is the only one. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. Isaiah 43 and verses 10 and 11. It says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. He is the only Lord and the only Savior. In Jude verse 4, it says, Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So His name will be the only one exalted in that day because God is going to crush, abolish, and annihilate all false gods. Ultimately, that's the goal. And that will happen. As He did in the the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt in Exodus 12, 12, where it says that the Lord will, he says he will execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. Against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. He did because he destroyed Egypt and delivered his people from there. But ultimately, that's that's just a symbol of what God will ultimately do. He'll be the only God in the whole universe that is acknowledged as the true and living God. Okay, that's what he is about to do. So verses 10 and 11. He's also going to change the terrain, it says in 10 and 11. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Geba was on the north side, Ramon on the south side, north and south. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Jerusalem itself was on a mountain, but the mountains round about it will all be flattened so that there is a plain all around. And it says there uh, will remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate. The... These gates are likely on the northern part of the city and the corner gate towards the western part, northern part and towards the west. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. This tower also on the north and the wine presses are all on the south. And what will be there? Who will be there? Verse 11, and people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell Insecurity. The people, which people will live in it? Not everybody, but the redeemed people. And he calls the redeemed people Jerusalem in verse 11. He calls them people, and then he says, Jerusalem will dwell in security. He doesn't mean merely that the buildings will not be destroyed by foreign enemies. He's talking about the people will live there or dwell there Insecurity. No one to harm them, no one to harass them. They will have peace and security because the Lord will establish this. He says in verse 11, no more curse. 
No more curse. This reminds us of a couple of curses. No more curse will be in existence. The first curse occurred when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. He says, in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. And then in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, he describes the fact that they die. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And spiritually they died in Genesis 3, 1 to 8, because they knew they were naked and they fled to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord walking in the garden. So they died spiritually and they died physically. That's the curse that came on all mankind because of Adam and Eve's sin, which is also 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. By a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the curse. But also, this word particularly reminds us of what God said to Joshua and what the people were to do to the Canaanites. They were to also, the Canaanites were to be under a curse. In the New American Standard Bible, it's usually rendered under the ban. Ban meaning prohibited, but in what sense prohibited? Not only prohibited from consultation, access, and ownership, but destroyed, put under a curse, the curse of death. This is the case, for example, in Joshua 6.18. Joshua 6.18, where this term is used. He says, 6.18, But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban. So you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. He warns them not to take or seize or covet any of the things under the ban, anything that was prohibited. If they did, then they would be under a curse and bring trouble on the camp, which happened in the next chapter because the man Achan, he did so. He transgressed this and he was known as Achan, the troubler of Israel. In chapter 7, <coughs> verses... 22 to 26, known as the troubler, because he brought the, the curse on Israel. So what God cursed the Canaanites and their possessions, Israel was to avoid. They were to avoid or be under a curse themselves. But now in the future, there will be no curse. So why will there be no curse among the people of God? Why will there be no curse, no death, no punishment for them? Because of Christ. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ became a curse for us by dying for our sins. Therefore, when we enjoy eternity, we enjoy it without any curse among us. That's the same in Revelation 21, 
verse 4. The curse will disappear. It will be completely gone from among the people of God. Revelation 21, verse 4. Let's read 3 and 4. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then to summarize what we just read in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, chapter 22, Revelation 22, verse 3 says, And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. So no curse, because God will remove it, and we will dwell in security forever. 12 to 15. Now verses 12 to 15 of Zechariah. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. This description of God's judgment, it's the plague And usually this word plague in verse 12 refers to a plague coming from the Lord. In the Old Testament, this word plague, and even here in 14.12, it it says, with which the Lord will strike all the peoples. The Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. He is the one who will inflict this plague. Now, the first part of the plague where it says their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, we find this in Leviticus 26, 16. Leviticus 26 and verse 16. He says, I in turn will do this to you. We may actually see more than just the rotting, but the various diseases here. 26.16, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. This is God doing it. He's doing it here, and he's done this in different periods of history. But ultimately, in this final warfare, God's going to do it against the people who rise up against his people. In 26.16, he's warning Israel, physical Israel, I'll do this to you because of your sins. But in Zechariah 14.12, he's talking about the enemies of the true Israel who will receive this kind of punishment. Further, we find it in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, 21, and 22. Deuteronomy 28, 
21. Let's read starting in verse 20, 20 to 22. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they shall pursue you until you perish. Who's the one pursuing them? It's God. Uh, we can also read 27, 27 to 29. Deuteronomy 28, 27. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you shall grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. That was a threat to physical Israel, and God did that in history. But now here, he's going to do it to the enemies of Israel because the enemies of true Israel deserve this kind of punishment. He also speaks here of their tongue will rot in their mouth. Why is God against their tongue? He's against their tongue because of what he says in Isaiah. Isaiah 37, Isaiah 37, verse 6. Isaiah 37, 6. This was Sennacherib and Sennacherib's officials coming to threaten and taunt King Hezekiah and the Lord. And this is what is said in 37.6. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. The servants or the officials of the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, they are taunting God and the king that God has in Judah, Hezekiah. And God says, they're blaspheming me. They're blasphemed, so I'm going to take care of their mouth, ultimately. Verse 7, in this immediate context, he says, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Make him fall by the sword in his own land. And this is fulfilled in 37, 36. Isaiah 37, 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sharezer, his sons, 
killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Well, just as God showed on that small scale what he could do to those who blaspheme, here he's explaining what he's going to ultimately do to all people who blaspheme. He'll take care of them and punish them. Now, 14.13, Zechariah 14.13, And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Further, he's going to make them panic and kill each other, which is not a new thing either. God has done this at various points in the past and will do so here in the future. Having done so in the past, Joshua, no, excuse me, not Joshua, Judges, Judges chapter 7, Judges seven, twenty-two, Judges 7 and verse 22. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerarah, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabath. Who is it? The Lord set the sword of one against another. 1 Samuel 14, 1 Samuel 14, 20. 1 Samuel 14, 20. This is Saul and the Philistines, Israel and the Philistines with King Saul. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. When Jehoshaphat was in trouble with three enemy nations, Jehoshaphat, godly king of Judah, when he was in trouble, we pick it up at verse 22. 2 Chronicles 20, 22 to 23. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. God made them suspicious of each other. They distrusted each other. And then they killed each other. And they didn't harm Israel. We have one more example in Revelation 6, 3 and 4. Revelation 6, 3. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. So God makes men panic and frightful and suspicious of each other, and they kill each other. God makes it happen. Then 14, not only is God fighting, but the people of God are helping each other. Zechariah 14, 14, And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. 
Judah and Jerusalem. The people who are dispersed abroad will come and help those who are being attacked. Those dispersed abroad are Judah and those who are being attacked are in or at Jerusalem. So they will help each other. It's not, your Bible may say, Judah will fight against Jerusalem as though among the people of God they are killing each other, but that's not the way it should be translated. It should be, Judah will fight at Jerusalem or in Jerusalem to help the people of God. So that what they lost in verse 1 for it says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In 14, that spoil is recovered. It's recovered, and the people of God have great abundance. Then, 15, So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Now it says that God's against all these animals. Is God against animals in and of themselves? No. He's against them because who owns them? He's taking away their abilities to use them and profit from them, benefit them against the people of God. That's why he's against those animals. Not because the animals in and of themselves are wrong or evil. This happens to Achan. Joshua 7.24. Joshua 7.24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And then 25 to 26. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Achor means trouble. And it's a play on the name Achan or Achan, his name. So this is God destroying everything that belongs to the wicked in this case. That should not surprise us because what happened in the days of Noah when the flood came? Didn't God destroy many, many animals along with the people? He didn't just destroy the people and infants. He destroyed the animals, most of them, and spared some, but destroyed most of them. That's the same as here. And even when the Lord returns, what does it say in Second Peter 3? The earth, the earth will be destroyed by fire, which means that whatever remains on the earth that is not intended to last for eternity will be consumed or destroyed by fire, including not, ju- not only the people, but all the animals. It says in 2 Peter 3, 7, 
But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So God will destroy it all and then make a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And actually, that is where Zechariah is headed. He's explaining this final warfare and how God's going to make everything and everyone holy. Now we're at 16 to 21. Zechariah 14, 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the Lord, uh, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, what will happen? There will be some people who survive. He's not going to obliterate and annihilate all people when he intervenes for the people of God. Some people will survive. And among those who survive, it says in 16, any who are left of all the nations. These are the survivors, the remnant among them, that they will go up to worship the king. The Gentiles among the nations who repent and believe in the gospel are going to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. But then some of them who survive will not do so. That's described in 17 to 19. Some will not do so. And he isolates Egypt as a primary example because Egypt, for its history, its history with Israel in the biblical period, was notorious from the time of the Exodus in Moses' day, notorious for being stubborn and unwilling to repent. The majority of them, the majority of the Egyptians under Pharaoh and Moses in Moses' time, stubborn and refused to repent, the vast majority of the Egyptians. So that's why Egypt here is an example, an example of the greatest enemy and the most stubborn and unflinching among the evil peoples or nations of the world. But it's not only Egypt, it's the rest of the nations. But also we need to note that the Bible does say that there will be a remnant in Egypt, just as there will be a remnant among all nations. This is exemplified in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 19, 9. 
Isaiah 19, excuse me, 1919. Isaiah 19, 19 to 25. 1919. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. That's Christ right there in verse 20. The savior and champion or mighty one. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. That phrase, in that day. So we're talking about the same time as um, Zechariah is. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. If they return, return is a synonym of repentance. They will repent, he will respond, but with the forgiveness of sins, and will heal them. 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. So some among the Egyptians and the nations, the remnant among them, they will belong to the Lord and be known as the people of God. But those who don't, they will have a curse upon them. And this curse is symbolized as not having rain. No rain. Now, Egypt did not have to depend on rain because they had the Nile. But still, Egypt would have benefited. And the rest of the nations, they do depend on rain most of the time. And even the land of Israel depends on rain. So, withholding rain is a symbol of having a curse placed on them. This is evident in what we read in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let's see, for example, in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus 26 and verses 18 to 20. 18 to 20. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. No produce and nothing in coming down from the sky. No fertility of the earth to support them and to feed them. This 
is also what the prophet Amos explained in the book of Amos, chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 7. Amos 4, 7. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. Verse 8. Um, so two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This withholding of rain is because of their sins and a, a punishment for their sins. And we also find one more place in James 5. James Five seventeen and 18. James 5. James mentions Elijah the prophet, which incident took place in the book of Kings, chapters 17 and 18. 1 Kings 17 and 18. But James summarizes those two chapters here. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah prayed to the Lord in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And Elijah prayed for a curse to come upon his own nation. And God honored the prayer by withholding rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed for rain to come, and God honored that prayer too. And then the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. So this is what's being described here. A curse on those who refuse to worship the Lord. But also we notice this emphasis on the Feast of Booths. Why is it the Feast of Booths? It says in Zechariah fourteen sixteen to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Further in 18, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And in 19, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. What is it about the Feast of Booths that is highlighted here? Why is he describing this feast? The the symbolism of the Feast of Booths has to do Primarily, though it has more than one purpose, primarily it has to do with God providing for Israel in the wilderness after they left Egypt and until they inherited the land of Canaan. So living with the Lord among them, both in the wilderness and in the land of Canaan, the Lord living among them, that's what was highlighted with the Feast of Booths. So that it's a symbol of the Lord living among His people in the future. That's primarily why it's an important feast. Let's see. We, we might begin in Leviticus. Let, let's just take one passage here to highlight this. Leviticus chapter 
23. Leviticus chapter 23. The Feast of Booths itself is described in verses 33 to 44. 33 to 44. We'll pick it up in the middle of the description because it's of its relevance to Egypt in verses 39 to 44. 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of the beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. They were to celebrate this at the end of their gathering of crops in the seventh month. Now, the seventh month does not mean the seventh month according to the way we calculate seven months, but their months would start usually in the month of March, equivalent to our month of March. So it would be around the ninth or the 10th month, according to our reckoning. So they would celebrate this. And this would be at the end of their harvest. Because at the end of the harvest, that's a symbol of them having the abundance and having all of the, the, the fertility of the earth in their possession that they can enjoy for the rest, for the rest of the fall and winter. So this Feast of Booths was to symbolize God's presence out of Egypt among them, both in the wilderness and in Canaan. So if that's the case, what what did Canaan symbolize? According to Hebrews 3 and 4, the land of Canaan symbolized living in heaven. The ultimate rest and Sabbath rest, living with the Lord in heaven. And that's also what we find in Revelation. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 3. 21:3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the booth of God, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Lastly, Zechariah 14, 20 to 21. In that day, in that day, and the book ends also in that day. In that day, the return of Christ and victory over all the nations. There will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Two major points to make here in verses 20 to 21. First, the point of holiness. He's describing the bells of the horses, cooking pots, bowls, and altar, holy to the Lord. Everything is holy to the Lord. Nothing is profane. In our period, and especially in the Mosaic period, during the time of the ritual sacrifices, there were things considered holy and other things profane. Clean objects and unclean objects. But now, there's no more a distinction because there's no more sin. Everything will be on the same level. Everything will be holy. It said in verse 21, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Because normally they weren't, but now they will be. Everything will be on the same level. He's he's illustrating the fact that there will be permanent and eternal holiness with no distinction for all eternity. Permanent and eternal holiness. No distinction forever. That's the first point. And that, that of course, we saw as well in Revelation 21, 3 to 4, that there's no more curse. There's no more curse because there's no more sin. And 2 Peter 3, 13, but we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That means no wickedness. So everything is holy to the Lord. That's one. Number two, he says at the end, there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. And why does he say Canaanite? Is God against all Canaanites? Is that the point? Or does the Canaanite represent something? It represents unbelief, or he represents unbelief. The people who exploit the Lord's house, whether those who work in the Lord's house or those who attend the Lord's house, those who exploit, they are known as a Canaanite. He's talking about wicked people. No more wicked people in the house of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the Lord Jesus did. He did it twice. He did it first in John 2, 13 to 17. John 2, 13 to 17. And Matthew 21, 12 to 13. Matthew 21, 12 to 13. Let's read the Matthean account. Matthew 21, verse 12. 21, 12 because this one will also tell us the following. Uh, 21.12 And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. My house shall be called a house of prayer. But they turn it into 
a den of robbers. And this is the same in John 2, 13 to 17. He throws them out and overturns their tables. And this was a persistent problem. Those who should know better when they minister in the house of the Lord among the people of God, for the people of God, representing God, they exploit the people of God and profane the name of God. But no longer, he says. No longer is that going to happen. Now, in terms of the pagan aspect of it or the unbelieving aspect of it, we will note in Revelation 21, Revelation 21, 22. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. 21, 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 22.14 and 15. 22.14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So all evildoers will have no place in the city of the Lord. The people of the Lord redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ will be there. The Lord himself will be there. And he's going to transform heaven and earth. And we will dwell in his presence with no evildoers around us and no more evil all around us forever. That's what Zechariah is preaching here, predicting it. Shall we be a part of it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.